So welcome back, everybody, to Brubble, a podcast exploring young voices and perspectives from and around the Brussels bubble. Today, we're focusing on a shiny topic, so to say, golden passports, uh, which present an interesting dilemma for the European Union. They, they fred, you know, the conversation between small states' rights, migration, rule of law, the power of the commission, all these large thematic areas. But do we really know what golden passports are? And why should we, as Europeans, be concerned, if at all? So joining me today on this episode of the Brawl Podcast to give a golden interview of this golden topic is Niels. How are you doing today, Niels? <laughs> Hi, Thor Simon. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Niels Seidel. I'm a research fellow uh, at working at Leipzig University. Uh, I'm a lawyer by training, so I focus mainly on European law and public international law. Um, and I'm right now writing my PhD on golden passports and golden visa uh, and their evaluation under EU and public international law. Very interesting. And when I first talked to you, because we, I think we met through the SEPS Young Thinkers program, I thought that was such a unique topic area to go through. And I was thinking to myself, how did this man ever get to thinking about golden passports? Did he at one point in time try to buy one and then was so overwhelmed the price? How did you get up on this <laughs> academic journey? So, the lucky, th- the good thing is, um, I as a German citizen, uh, I've already won in the birthright lottery, as it's sometimes described, right? I don't need a golden passport. With a German passport and thereby you know, the union citizenship that's connected with it, I can do whatever I want. I can travel pretty much wherever I want without a visa. I can settle across the European Union. But uh, kind of towards the end of my studies, I've always been fascinated by how states interact with each other. And I feel like, you know, microstates are such an interesting part of our global international system at the moment because they have to compete with countries like Germany, with the United States, with the EU as as a bloc, even though they are extremely small. And I worked on state aid and international tax competition uh, and did some research there, published something there. And from that point, I noticed I looked a bit at how Malta is trying to finance itself, how they're trying to f- finance government expenditure, what their what their business model is. Um, and I noticed golden passports as one element there. And also, I think, finally, like, I remember, this, this only comes to me now that, 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 that you asked this question that we're talking about this. I remember that it, it must be, it must have been like 10 years ago at school classes, we had, it was English classes, we had to read a newspaper article and present it to the class in English. Uh, and I remember, I remember that the article was uh, kind of a feature on the Maltese program published in the New York Times. And the title was, uh, Maltese citizens don't actually have to live there. Uh, and I was like, oh, that, that sounds curious, that sounds <laughs> odd. So I, I read through it, and that was the first time that I noticed uh, golden passports. But little did I know then that six or seven years later, I, would, I was going to be writing my PhD, Fair my PhD on this. Yeah, no, the first time I, uh, I opened a Windows computer, I also didn't know I'd be working in a government affairs division 10 years later. So. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you, you don't know where you're going to end up. Um, and that's the... The interesting thing about life, right? It's, yeah. it's a surprise. And wherever you end up, you need a passport to live there, right? Yes. That's the connective tissue. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Um, so when we talk about golden passports, obviously we don't talk about them because they're literally golden, right? Mm-hmm. Um, golden passports, the, the official term for it is actually citizenship by investment. And usually, as you point out, right, when we 
want to move somewhere or start work um, and acquire that country's citizenship, we go through the ordinary citizenship process. We, we, we cross the borders, we settle down, we live there for a period of time, five to ten years, depending on the country's rules. We go through a citizenship exam, we prove our language skills, we show that we are integrated. Golden passports or citizenship by investment offer a way around that. It, it, it means being able to acquire citizenship through an extraordinary process. And that extraordinary process means you acquire citizenship as a return for an investment, as it's called. Mm. And that can, investment can, you know, it depends from country to country, uh, and it can stretch from buying a property with a certain minimum value, renting a property with a certain minimum rent, uh, all the way to buying government bonds, uh, uh, investing in a company, becoming a massive shareholder in a, in a domestic company, or making a donation to a, a local club. And you, looking across the world, there are different countries having different um, scales of what investment they require. Uh, in the European Union, gold passports typically used, uh, Malta is the only country still doing it now, but typically require about a bit more than 1 million, 1 to 1.5 million uh, added together. Uh, and across the world, that, would, that can essentially go down to 350,000, 400,000. And then there are golden visas. So obviously, if, yeah. you, if you want to live a golden life, you first <laughs> need to think about, do I want to have a golden passport or do I want to just want to have a golden visa? Uh, and golden visa are somewhat similar, right? It, it, it means residency by investment. Through your investment, you don't get the nationality, you don't get citizenship of a country. You receive the permission to reside there, to work there, and typically comparing it with gold passports, they're a bit less expensive. Well, that's good news for me, I suppose, if I ever want to <laughs> live in Malta. Yes. <laughs> no, it, it's funny, though, because how you draw the parallels to the citizenship process. As somebody who's gone through the citizenship process, I can definitely see why people want to fast track through it. But then the question also becomes, is this something we should be doing? Because I know that there are defenders of the golden passport process saying, I mean, does it really make that much of a difference if we allow rich yeah. people to buy in? It only benefits our citizens, right? And there are others who just view it as more of a rule of law issue, so to say. I, I suppose maybe asking yourself versus a person, where do you stand on this? And where, where do you think the literature will stand on this? So I think... As a, so I'm com I can comment on this both as a private citizen but also as a lawyer. Go for it. The legality and the political merits of the program are two completely separated questions. Mm. Um, I would argue that on the legal side of things, obviously the Commission is of the view that it's contrary to European Union law. I personally, you know, I'm still doing my research at the moment and I would also argue that is where the majority of scholars lie uh, who say that it might be in line with EU law, but we can we may come to this a little bit later. Uh, there are a number of sticking points where I personally feel a credible case can be made that, that golden passports actually are a breach of EU law. As a private citizen and commenting it from a, the political side, um, you touched upon the, the morality question, right? Is it fair that a couple of people are able to purchase these passports? I would argue that the real trouble doesn't necessarily lie with the fact that a couple people are able to buy a passport that I can also acquire through an alternative route. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of scholars who say that this in itself, this discrimination on the basis of wealth is reason enough to abolish it and to say that it's unfair. I don't personally believe that. Or to me, you know, I see where they're coming from, but to me that is not the, the decisive issue. For me, the decisive issue why I think 
these policies should be reversed, or at least there should be very strict scrutiny applied to them, are other adverse effects. And we may get into them later as well, right? Talking about transparency, talking about uh, the, uh, the potential for corrupt activity that go hand in hand with, with these passports. Yeah, interesting, because that's a good overview of whole, the whole debate going on here. And you mentioned the European Commission while you were talking earlier. What's their role in this debate? Because I know they've been a bit more active than some people think they should have been in the last few years on this issue. Absolutely right. So uh, I think the high point of the Commission's activity came last September when they, uh, you know, you have to imagine ever since the Cypriotic and the Maltese program as it started to exist, a couple of uh, 2014, 2013, the Commission has been very, very closely monitoring it and has been very critical. Uh, about it. Uh, And negotiations have been going on uh, for a long period of time. And the Commission has consistently applied very high pressure to uh, Malta, to Bulgaria, and to Cyprus. Malta is pretty much the only country still resistant. And in September, the Commission went before the European Court of Justice and launched an infringement procedure against Malta, uh, claiming that the Golden Passport Programme, as it stands now, is a breach of EU law. The political pressure that the Commission has applied to Cyprus and Bulgaria has led to those countries actually abolishing their citizenship by investment program and no longer taking any applications. Because after the start of the Russian war of regression, the whole public pressure on it has just grown massively. Because uh, yeah, just one, one, one figure, uh, latest estimate by the European Parliamentary Research Service suggests that about 40 to 50 percent of passport holders are Russian and Belarusian nationals. Some of them are under sanctions. Uh, Oleg Deripaska, for example, is a very well-known Russian oligarch um, uh, and close supporter of, of Vladimir Putin, has, has been in the past. He's, under, he's been under international sanctions both by the UK, by the EU, and also by the United States, as I understand, for a very long period of time. Uh, it, was, it was revealed that he was, in fact, a Cypriot, mm. a, a citizen of Cyprus, and acquired that citizenship through a golden passport program. And this has just led to the political pressure becoming in a sense, unbearable. Uh, and we have seen a reaction, even from Cyprus and Malta, who have decided to withdraw some of the citizenships uh, from uh, a number, not all, but some of the citizenship from a number of, uh, of individuals. Yeah, because I remember when this issue first really popped into my developed mind was because uh, I, I will, you know, out myself here publicly now. I, I support Chelsea Football Club and their previous oh. owner, Roman Abramovich. Now it's going to get rough. <laughs> I know, I know. There goes my credibility. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, their previous owner, it turned out he held a Portuguese passport, which he also obtained via, I believe, this visa or gold Gold visa program, program. yeah. Yes. And that also was very tenuous. And I think there was pressure put on the Portuguese government to revoke that passport following invasion. I don't know if they actually did or not. I'm not going to, you know, get into any political scuffles here. But I I remember that being quite, it was quite a moment in time when I was like, hey, this is something that I probably won't agree with as a European citizen. And also, I mean, the fascinating thing, and I'm commenting as as, as somebody who's, who's working on European law, Uh, The fascinating thing about revocation of those passports is there is a wholly different question about Mm. whether those revocations are actually legal. You could come to the conclusion that golden passports and golden visa are legal under European Union law, but the revocations are not. Because Mm. as you acquire the passport, you acquire a, uh, a, a position of 
a set legal right, a set legal standard. Um, and that means that you can have confidence, you can have trust, trust in this standard continuing to exist. So if you withdraw passports, the European Court of Justice, ha and you thereby also lose the citizenship of the European Union, the Court of Justice over time has uh, applied uh, stricter rules to you know, how deeply member states can or, or what member states can do in withdrawing those passports. And withdrawing golden passports is just the same thing. Right? You have to say that, for example, Malta legislation has specific rules and allows the Maltese government to withdraw, uh, to take away golden passports. Interesting. Um, if people are um, either under, under sanctions themselves or if they pose a threat to national security, there are a number of other reasons in that catalogue. So you know, revocation of passports is, some, is something that raises completely different questions as well. Yeah. Going back a little bit to the European Commission angle, and you were talking about how the issue was impacting these small countries. How do you think this issue will progress going forward? Do you think there will be more pressure put on Malta as well? Or what, what do you think the whole attitude towards golden passports are in the whole, I guess, from a Brussels-based perspective? Why should we care about it? So I think we should care about, and it's not just the Commission that cares about this, but mm -hmm. also the European Parliament and in some some way uh, also member states. Um, of course, as you pointed out right at the beginning, right, you, you can make the argument, well, it's just a couple of citizenships. It's really only Malta that's left <laughs> doing it. Golden, pa golden Visa, don't get me wrong, is a program that is much more common still, but golden passports, the number of countries issuing golden passports in the European Union is going down. So you could ask yourself, you know, why are we still doing this? There are literally also references in the Bible, in the Acts, to uh, people acquiring passports, in this case, the Roman citizenship, through paying a large sum of money. So, so why, why, why do we care about this? And I think there are two reasons. The first one is, even though it is only Malta left, issuing golden passports and in some way also Austria yet not in that you know in that systematic way we're talking about a billion euro business there um, between 2015 and 2021 the total number of main applicants is what they call receiving a passport has exceeded 1400 but every main applicant comes with a number of dependents in the case of Malta, mm -hmm. which is about 2.29 dependents. So in total, according to the according to official figures re released by the regulator uh, in question, uh, about 5,000 people have received the golden passport, which in itself doesn't sound like a large figure yeah. until you recognize that Malta only has about 500,000 people. So it's about 1% mm. of the Maltese population receiving uh, citizenship through a golden passport regime. And then we are talking about total investments of more than 220 million euros. And we are talking about so-called contributions of about 1 billion euros in just six years. This is a multi-million, indeed billion dollar, billion euro business and has been in not, not just in Malta, but also in Cyprus. Uh, and we're talking kind of taken together with the transparency and corruption risks that I'm sure we'll get into in a second, yeah. um, that becomes a problem. Right? Nobody is actually complaining about investment in a country. I think we can yeah. generally agree that, that that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and we, I think, also can generally agree that whatever the country, countries need to find a way to make money, to finance themselves. 
Uh, and if you're a small country that doesn't have a large domestic market, that doesn't have a large domestic you know, industrial base, that doesn't have a large population, how do you make money then? Um, so that is less the problem. I think the problem more is what do you do? How do you use the money uh, that you earn with it? So that is kind of one aspect of why the commission has been critical. And the second aspect uh, has something to do with the connection between national citizenship and union citizenship. Right? That is the only reason, this connecting element is the only reason why the commission is interested in this. Because under the European treaties, you receive union citizenship automatically with having a national citizenship of a member state, right? It yeah. is something that is that is given to you by virtue of being a citizen of a member state. Um, but then the rights that we enjoy as union citizens, right, freedom of movement, freedom of establishment, freedom to work across the union, freedom to seek social services uh, across the union. These are citizens we enjoy, these are rights that we enjoy by virtue of being union citizens. So in this this connecting element uh, kind of takes it out of the sphere of national states into a European state sphere. Mm. Uh, and that is why the commission the commission believes that uh, through selling passports that what we are having is essentially a reduction of value of union citizenship. That is one element of the commission's opinion. Uh, and the the other element has something to do with uh, the principle of it's called the principle of loyalty and the principle of sincere cooperation. So the, it's about cooperation of member states with the Commission, with the European Union, and also with other member states. Right? Member states are not allowed to take political measures that hinder the European Union to pursue their policy objectives. In this case, the policy objective of uh, integrity of union citizenship. And and finally, um, you know, everybody accepts in the legal sphere that granting citizenship in itself is part of traditional state sovereignty. It is you know, the most crucial things that you can do as a state. You choose your own people, uh, and because we all live in, in kind of post-19th century, post-French Revolution nation states, you as a state choose your own sovereign, right? That is how you get legitimacy as, as a state, by choosing your own people. But because of the link between national citizenship and union citizenship, uh, states across the European Union have to accept the granting of citizenship by other member states. There is a judgment mm. called Micheletti where the Court of Justice has said that states, what, wh wherever you've gained your citizenship throughout the European Union, you, every other member state has to accept it and therefore also has to grant you union citizenship rights, even though they themselves had no part in deciding over how you became a citizen. A citizen. Um, so this link, this effect on other member states is also a reason why this is not just a national issue, but a European issue. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I didn't really put that two and two together, but the differentiations in what it means to be a European citizen and what it me means to be a sovereign citizen. And it does also remind me a bit of the whole rule of law conversation because we see a lot of rule of law conversations nowadays of Hungary, Poland, and I actually didn't know they had opened similar proceeding against Malta. Yeah, Malta case. Yeah. Yeah, well. yeah, so how does this go into the transparency and corruption debate? Because I would assume that most people who buy passports, I would assume that if you need to buy a passport, you are only an upstanding citizen in the eye of the law, right? <laughs> Well, that, that, we may be able to assume that, but it might not necessarily check out in, ah. in reality. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think rightly raise the main concerns with golden passport and golden visa schemes. And they, they feature around corruption and transparency. Um, I think it would be wrong to suggest that the programs themselves are a, are corrupt, right? You can you can set up golden passports programs with very clear transparency by, for example, publishing the names of those who yeah. received citizenship through a golden passport program. Then having very clear transparency standards uh, about how the money that is being invested is used. Right? What are the projects who receive that money? Um, and by essentially using administrative procedures that allow that or, or that, that prohibit any single administrative officer of gaining too much power. That is not what we see across the world. And that is also, uh, I have to say, not what we see with in the case of Malta. In the case of Malta, Malta does have a regulator and the regulator does publish annual reports, which is more than what we see in other countries. And in those reports, you can get figures about what is the money that we earn with golden passports? Where's that money going? But you can't, you're not able to find out what are the projects that are in the end receiving the money. Mm-hmm. So what you do get out of the uh, out of the report is how much money so-called the so-called national development and social fund receives, which is tens of millions of euros a year, uh, and that is the vehicle that is used essentially to 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 to. Um, the National Development and Social Fund is the vehicle that is used to collect the money that is earned, the contributions that are earned, and then to dish them out to various projects. Um, you can get a business report on their website after you know Transparency International has been criticizing the, 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 the intransparency of this fund for a very long time. If you go on their website now, you can get an annual report and you can see uh, how, what, w, uh, what PwC thinks about it uh, and that they're essentially approving it. But what you cannot see is what are the projects that are receiving money and how is that money being used. Um, so that that has something to do with transparent administrative procedure that are just not there at this moment. I'm not saying that they could be established. I think they could, mm-hmm. but they are just not there at but this. But the time. money's still going into the country, right? This is something that is obviously you know the argument that's being made. It said, yeah. well, you know, we are receiving the money, and then in 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 the, in the 2021 report by the regulator, you can also see a, a table of um, non-governmental organization receiving donations. And you can see the name of the NGO, which I think is good, right? You can recognize what NGO, what kind of fund, and it's kind of whatever XY Children's mm-hmm. Hospital has received that, that, that money. And then you can ask them, what was that money for? Right? How did you use it? I think that is transparency. But simply talking about a certain fixed sum received to a third, that which a certain fund has received is not is not enough. The second aspect, which touches more on corruption itself, I think is about, we need to realize that golden passports are part of an extraordinary naturalization procedure. They're not part of the ordinary citizen naturalization Mm -hmm. procedure, which means that individual government decision makers have a lot more power, either through ministerial Mm -hmm. decision or through the um, through individuals who who are able to make this decision, and this has over time, uh, time and time again, 
led to corruption instances. For example, Hungary. Hungary, a couple of years ago, abolished their gold visa program at the time because it came out that the, they, they essentially suspended it after it came out that they had given contracts to a number of organizations to sell golden visas without a public tender process. Then something arrests, I think, at the time had been made in Portugal after uh, there were concerns about individual of- officials uh, and corruption. Uh, and in the case of Malta, um, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a leaked report of the Maltese Financial Intelligence Unit, which revealed that uh, about 100,000 euros paid by um, three Russian individuals seeking a golden passport ended up in the account of the chief of staff of the former Maltese Prime Minister, Joseph Muscat. Essentially what <laughs> happened, according according to the reporting, is that the applicants sent money to an offshore bank account mm-hmm. uh, Whose beneficiary was a close personal, uh, a close business relationship, uh, business associate to um, former Prime Minister Muscat, uh, and from that bank account, it was then apparently, tra- according to the reporting, transferred to the account of the chief of staff, uh, and the, the the journalist who who reported this, um, Daphne Galicia. Um, you may remember her name, was later famously killed in a car bomb. And that led to a massive political scandal Mm. in Malta, essentially an unravelling of broader corruption uh, accusations against the Maltese government. And eventually also uh, it led to, I would argue, played a massive role in uh, in the resignation of former Prime Minister Muscat. So, I mean, you know, the Maltese government will, will argue that and has in in fact the the regulator of golden passports argued in the 2021 report that all of those allegations uh, that's what the regulator wrote are quote baseless uh, unquote mm. um, and it is very difficult or it's a very thin line between arguing against a straw man yeah and saying golden passports programs are by themselves corrupt mm-hmm. uh and you know they're, they're, every single golden passport is the result of corrupt activity. Right? That that would be a straw a straw man. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, actually trying to separate. Okay, what does this program look like? What is the chance of, or what is the risk associated with it uh, of corrupt activity through intransparent administrative procedures? Uh, and I think we need to be very careful not to overstep this line and, and get into the straw man debate because I'm not, I'm not denying that there may be investors who have mm-hmm. got who've received the golden passport, the passport of Malta, or, or at the time of Cyprus, uh, uh, through open, honest investments, no corruption whatsoever. I think that might even be the rule for all I know. The problem is that one, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Malta is legally required to publish the names of every single citizen that is receiving Maltese nationality per year in the official government gazette. But it doesn't have to say who's gaining it through golden passports. Right? It, you, essentially, what you have is a six-page long document of people who gain Maltese nationality that year. Yeah, it's, a lo- it's a lot of names, but you don't see who's gaining it through golden passports. Yeah, uh, And I think that is one of the, the chances of where transparency can be improved uh, and where the programmes can be designed in a way to prevent abuse. Yeah, because that kind of leads to a question I had lingering in my head as you were talking for the last 20 minutes. It's 
Wood Derby. I'm sorry, was I talking too much? <laughs> no, no, I was just collecting Falling all together. Falling into a, a Shakespearean monologue. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no worries. <laughs> it was quite fascinating. But I, I was just thinking, is there any set of circumstances where you, as an ardent, you know, knowledge person, an, an ardent red person on Golden Passports, would approve of Golden Passport procedures being in place? Because on the surface level, I could argue as a multi-citizen being like, hey, if we change a few things... Each person coming to the country will donate millions of dollars to the hospital, which will then save, you know, my, my child who's suffering from cancer their life. Absolutely right. In fact, it's interesting that you talk about ch children and cancer, because <laughs> if you look at the 2021 report, one of the foundations that has received the highest and by far the highest amount of um, I don't know. I'm not sure anymore whether it was the largest donations, uh, but one of the foundations that received the highest amount of donation was, in fact, a children's cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know whether it was a hospital or an NGO uh, seeking children in, in, in fighting cancer. Um, you're absolutely right. Right? We're talking about, especially with golden passports, we're talking about large sums of money. Yeah. I, I talked about millions, billions of euros. Um, that can be life-changing that can be changing a community for good it can build a school it can you know buy a hundred microsoft surface uh, or, or ipads for the for the school class right um it it can have a beneficial impact and therefore i think in principle and now i'm not commenting from a legal perspective from a, from a political perspective yeah. from a political perspective it makes sense the only way that i can imagine this uh being a a policy that I would support would be if there are transparent administrative processes behind it where you can see where is the money going in a way that journalists or public citizens are able to contact the recipients, contact the organisations and see, okay, this is how the money was spent uh, uh, and this is how um, it has benefited the community. Yeah, but I, I think wrapping it all up a little bit, what should people take away about golden passports? As people, I suppose, I think most of my audience are people here in the Brussels bubble working in some form of government affairs or working in the commission, parliament themselves. What would you tell them about golden passports as a system? Well, essentially two things. First of all, um, people should, should note that transparency matters and that they need to apply political pressure to the states involved in order to fulfill, uh, in order to make sure that those programs are transparent and that there is there are clear administrative pr procedures preventing abuse. The second aspect I think that people should know or that she, people should be aware, and I think it's, you know, if you're in the Brussels bubble, I would argue that it's very easy to discount the fact that national states do exist in the European Union. Uh, and they do have, in some way, a right to exist. The European Union is an international organisation. It is. It exists because member states want it to exist. Uh, and I think people should uh, try and recognise that not every state in the European Union is alike. Not every state can earn a lot of tax revenue through a population that is well off, a, mm. a large domestic market, does have has a large domestic market, has a large industrial base, uh, particularly small states need to find a way to fund their government expenditure, to fund healthcare, to fund education. Uh, and we are living, and I'm, I'm sure everybody in the Brussels bubble is aware of that, we are living in a time of 
competition of mig- of migration, com- strategic migration competition. We want to have the best minds in our country, and we compete with the United States. We compete with Asia, um, and in that very competitive environment, states need to find a business model which sustains themselves. And if you are a micro nation or a very small nation, as we know, well, sometimes if you don't have all of all of the aspects that I talked about before, you need to be creative on how you earn money. Uh, and I would argue it is legitimate to to use the space that you have, in brackets, that is where the legal question comes in. Is it actually space that Malta or, or Portugal and Golden, uh, or Spain with Golden Visa does enjoy under EU law? But if they do, if it is that part of their legal sovereignty, uh, people should maybe think twice about infringing it and should be aware that maybe you need to give them a little space uh, in order to um, exercise their, their sovereignty and in order to be creative, in order to fund their government expenditure. Fair enough. And I, I feel like you'll get a nice first-hand experience of this coming up, I think, as you'll be spending some time in sunny old Malta yourself, right? Yes, I'll, I'll be spending the winter uh, in Valletta working for the, the University of... For you. Doing my research on the, the Museum University of Malta. I'm, I'm very looking forward to it, though. Um, uh, and, yeah, poor me, uh, having <laughs> to spend the winter in the, in the, on an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Absolutely right. Uh. Well, we'll be wrapping this up now because I think this was a very interesting conversation on an issue that had a lot more, I guess, like theoretical depth behind it than I had even imagined when we were first talking about this. But to wrap this up, I always ask a fun and personal question, uh, which is not very related to the topic at hand. So we were discussing golden, discussing golden passports. If you could have one thing that was golden, what would it be? <laughs> that's actually, yeah, that, that's actually very difficult to... Um because I'm kind of I'm I, I'm kind of in this dilemma where you know I try to give a serious answer. One part of my brain tries to give a serious answer, and the other part of my brain is thinking of something is thinking of things to say that just that are that are golden. But um, I'd like to have like a golden animal of sorts because I've always been very fascinated by you know those fairy tales of like the goose that lays the golden eggs, but then have the animal be golden and be like, "Is that your cat? Why is it shiny?" <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> It'd be funny. Honestly, like, I'm a very practical person, so I'd be happy just with, essentially, if, if I could have anything, like, like Donald, one of those rooms uh, that are filled with, like, gold coins, like Donald mm, Duck's gold chamber. Just diving in it. Just either to dive in it, which probably will hurt a lot if you just jump into... I heard, I saw some weird online article, like, going over what happens if you actually had that. It'll be like quicksand if you go in it, right? Because it's all this tiny moving thing, so it'll oh, suck you in yes, and crush yes. you to death. <laughs> so, yeah, not the best. Okay, maybe, maybe I, I'll, have to, I'll have to change my... my but just, no, just to have it. And I'd also be happy with, essentially, uh, a couple of... Uh, just just a couple a kilogram of gold that I could sell and buy myself a nice uh, apartment in Malta, maybe. Fair enough. I practical answer there. Practical answer. <laughs> uh, well, it's been great catching up, Niels. And anything, if the people were super interested in what you were doing, uh, maybe I'll drop. A, I don't know if you have any socials you want to drop below. Is there maybe even an article something you published recently? I can also link below. Uh, definitely. So, if people want to know more, you can reach me on on LinkedIn or through the uh, Leipzig University's website. And 
when the book is coming out, when the when the PhD dissertation is being released, uh, you can buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're being very far advanced here. I'm going to come back here in three years and update the description. And maybe that. in between, in, in the meantime, what they can do is they can check the uh, website of the Court of Justice of the European Union, where mm. the infringement procedure against Malta is taking place at this time, and they can check for uh, any updates on this because it it will be interesting reading. Yes, it'd be nice to get that spike in traffic and then attribute it to myself. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been great catching up, Neil. So thank you. I hope Thanks you... for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, similarly. Uh, and for the listener, thank you for listening. Uh, I always tell them to like and subscribe when I finish, which is probably not the best, you know, a strategy when doing of digital content. Uh, so yeah. Um, next episode, I haven't quite determined the topic yet, but as always, if you want to talk about EU policy, any type of political issue, reach out to me. Until then, I guess I'll talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.